As we uh, enter into the Word, I just want to invite you to turn to Galatians 4 if you have your scriptures with you. And we're going to have the joy and privilege of just hearing a little bit more about what God has for us and who we are in Him this morning. Before I jump into that, just let me open this up in prayer. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we acknowledge what a privilege it is to call you Father. Lord, that none of us deserve adoption by you. None of us deserve the status to be children of God. And yet you have shown us such a grace, such a mercy, such a love, so that we can see the love that the Father has lavished upon us so that we can be called children of God. Lord, we thank you for this past week of of interacting with so many kids. And Lord, we just pray that they would truly come to know you in a greater intangible way, that they would be transformed by your love and live lives of obedience to the calling that you have placed before him. Once again, I just thank you for the many people who made this past week of day camp happen and just the joy it was to, to show them the love that you have for them. Lord, we thank you for this time together as we look at your word. Amen. Amen. So, what we have been going through these last few weeks is examining the question of, well, who is God? And we started a few weeks ago by, by asking the question, well, how do we know what God is like? How do we even have a, a tangible understanding of what God is like? And we began to realize that the only way that we can know what God is like is if he has revealed himself to us. Amen. And so we looked at some of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. We looked at the ways that God has acted. And so we looked how God is creator and judging. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. We looked at how we can know God through his names like Yahweh or God Almighty or Lord. We looked at how God's attributes, his characteristics of love and grace and mercy reveal more about him. And then we also looked how God reveals himself through images. And some of the images we looked at were shepherd, was rock, and most of all we learned that one of the greatest ways that we can have an image or understanding of God is to know God as what? To know God as Father. And, and throughout the teaching of Jesus and throughout the New Testament, the, the greatest revelation of, of understanding of God is to know God as Father. And, and I think one of the, the, two, the two most important questions we can ask in this life is, first of all, the question, who is God? And the second most important question in this life is, who am I? Who is God and who am I? Now, today, if, if we understand God as Father, well, what is the implication for us as who we are? And so I want to look at a passage from Galatians 4, which begins to answer that question for us today. And I'm going to read this passage for us. It says this. I'm going to start in Galatians 3, verse 29. It says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, 
When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now what's fascinating to me about this passage and what's fascinating about the rest of the New Testament is there's many ways that we can identify ourselves. Uh, there's many ways that we can identify ourselves. So even for me as an example, some ways I could identify myself, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, all these things, right? And yet the New Testament really gives two major categories for defining identity. And it's the exact ones that this passage brings up. It says you can either be a slave or you can be a son. These are the existential realities that we all face in life. And these are the major identities that we can all wrestle with and claim in this life is we are either a slave or we are sons. Now, the way this passage frames a slave is someone who is born under the law or someone who is held on to the elementary principles of this world. And that's the definition it gives us of what a slave is. And so we need to wrestle with this concept of, well, what is a slave then? How do we understand what Paul is talking about? And so what is a slave? Give me a definition of how would we def define a slave together? Yeah, someone who is controlled, someone who is ruled over, someone who is owned, someone who is purchased, perhaps. Any other concepts of a slave? Pardon? No freedom, right? There's no freedom. They're controlled and exercised by the authority of someone as well. And so we could, we could frame all that together and basically define that the slave is someone who ultimately has a master that controls them. A slave is ultimately someone who has a master that controls them and tells them what to do. Now, slavery in the Greco-Roman world, the world in which Jesus taught and spoke in, is quite a different concept than how we understand and define slavery today. When we think of slavery, we think primarily in terms of race, don't we? And part of that is because of our Americans' uh, neighbors to the south. What was the slave trade? It was based on race. And so slavery was done in terms of um, basically taking people and using them as, as trade workers or as objects of ownership to accomplish work that they wanted to be done. And, and slavery in the Greco-Roman world was similar to that, but it was actually quite different. Um, slavery in the Greco-Roman world didn't have as much to do with race as it had to do with understanding um, the complex nature of different varieties of slavery. And so sure, there was this concept of, of slave ownership as owning property. People became property, and scriptures talks about the great injustice of that. 
Um, there were slave traders who treated people as property in the Greco-Roman world, but that wasn't the primary understanding and practice of slavery. Uh, the Roman Empire, it, it wasn't just based on this. Uh, sometimes slavery was people who had to pay a debt that they owed. They would borrow some money. And so sometimes slaves were people who were simply paying off a debt. And, and this is quite different than what we experience today because today if you have a debt you cannot pay, what do you do? You file for bankruptcy. Was there a concept of bankruptcy in the Greco-Roman world? No. And so you would exercise this slave labor that you would pay off a debt from. Now this debt could be paid off for a period of time and after you paid it off you would find freedom. So you weren't necessarily treated as owned, you weren't treated as simply an object, but it was simply a debt to be paid off. Now, there was also another category of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. There was actually a form of a volunteered slavery. Now, now that just doesn't make sense in our minds, does it? But what we would also see in the Greco-Roman world and the Roman Empire is other people volunteered to be slaves because they liked the job or they liked the master. If there was a rich uh, person living in luxury, people would often volunteer to be their slaves or their servants so they could experience some of that life. And so slavery in the Greco-Roman world wasn't completely just based on mastership, ownership, and control. But slavery was also entered into voluntarily at times, whether it was to pay off a debt or whether it was simply to live with a ruler. Now, what's fascinating about this to me, when we understand this cultural context in which Paul's talking about it, is really when we come to our own context then, it tells us that slavery itself can be forced or it can be entered into willingly. It can be forced or it can be entered into willingly. Now when Paul talks about slavery then to the church, he, he's talking much more about just masters and owners over people's life. He's talking much more existentially, looking at us of all the things that master us in our life, all the things that control us. And, and the reason I, I bring up both those examples of slavery is because we need to realize that we as humans are enslaved by many things. What do I mean by that? I mean that we are mastered or controlled in our lives by many things. Many things rule over us. Many things guide our lives. Many things control us. Sometimes it's things that we allow into our lives or sometimes it's things that are forced upon us. But in reality, much of our experience in life is simply being mastered by what Paul calls the elementary principles of this world. And so let's do another brainstorming together. What are some of the things that control us in this life? What have you seen in the lives of other people? What have you even seen in your own life? What are some of the things that you experience that you're just saying, I feel sometimes I have no control over this. I feel sometimes like this is completely overwhelming in my life. I feel sometimes that I just have absolutely no, no hope in the situation. What are some of those things that we see in this world that enslave us or master us or control us in this life? Yeah, taxes <laughs> or money itself, right? 
the need and desire to gain money and then the battle that comes with having to pay taxes after we get it. Death, Death itself is a, a threat in a sense. It, it masters us in the sense that it's going to come after each and every one of us. And many people can be controlled by death, whether it's by fear of death or all these things. Yeah, food, yeah. We wouldn't survive without it, but even good things can turn into ultimate where we're guided by it and long for it, yeah? Yeah, cell phones, that's a major... Who feels controlled by their cell phones at times, right? There's this aspect where, I mean, the notifications you get on your phone today, it's constant, it's just coming after you, and you're just dominated by it. Yeah, whether it's notifications from friends or by other people, phones can rule and control our lives in many senses. What are some other things? Yeah, drugs and alcohol. When we, when we talk about addictions and we move into the realm of escapism where we can give, be controlled by the things that we think are going to heal us or ease our pain, they ultimately come and destroy and we become enslaved to things like alcohol, alcoholism. We become enslaved to drugs with drug addiction. They can overwhelm us and master us and control our lives. What are some other things that control us? Fear? Beer. Beer, yeah. Beer is one that can definitely do that with alcoholism, right? Sin. Yeah, sin. What, what kind of sin masters and rules us? We could say all sin, so let's get a little more detailed, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, politics can master us. That is a very good point where even our identity can be so polarized with how we identify ourselves politically. That is a very good point where we, we entrap ourselves, we enslave ourselves, we identify ourselves through a very specific lens. Yeah, your opinion of others, and that can enslave you to a heart of judgmentalism and criticism. It can enslave you in the way that you treat others unfairly. Yeah, sport. <laughs> well, sports is a big one. I mean, even for me growing up, when we talk about things that control your life and master your life, um, especially for athletes, this is a very fine line of, of everything you pursue in life is living for your sport and improving in your giftings and your abilities, right? We just had the Olympics. And I mean, it's, I, I could imagine it's very hard to be an Olympian and a Christian at the same time because your life is dominated by one thing. And, and even it goes beyond, even if you're beyond being an athlete and now you're watching sports, now you're spending all your time and energy watching sports and basketball or football or hockey, whatever it may be. You're spending your time, you're spending your energy, you're spending your emotions all on this one thing, right? And what, what Paul is bringing up, and we, we could do this for days, by the way, but what Paul is bringing up here is that we are mastered by so many things in our life. We are controlled by so many things in our life. And, and if we don't pause and begin to process, and if we don't analyze and critique our own pursuits and our own passions and our own desires, Paul says, guess what? Your life is just going to be one of living in slavery. Your life is going to be pursuing all these things, living for all these things that actually instead of giving you an abundance of life, 
actually take away from life and destroy your life. And, and perhaps even when we come into our own lives and we analyze this, so many of us have, have this hesitation to analyze these things in our life because we feel as if they can control us and there's no hope out of them. I mean, the, the hardest step for, for addiction even is the, the first step of admitting that there is an issue. It's actually admitting that I have an addiction that has to be dealt with. And, and so many of us brush off things that control us in life because we don't actually want to deal with them and we believe that we can never actually find escape from them or we use them to escape. And so there's many things that can control us. When we talk about work or fear or anxiety or worry or lust or anger and security and greed, all these things plus what we talked about, all these things can truly control and dominate our life. But, but here's the hope that Scripture gives us. It gives us this hope that we don't have to be identified as slaves. We don't have to be identified in the sense that everything in this world has an opportunity to control us. And, and the way that we do this, the way that we find freedom from slavery is because of this. Verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent who? His son, Jesus, right? Why did he send him? To redeem those who were under the law, who were slaves to the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the only hope we have from being controlled by everything in this world is to have a passion and a purpose and a meaning that is beyond any of the things of this world. And the only way that we find those things is by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because he is the only one that can flee, free us from the slavery that we experience, and he does it by redeeming us. Now, this word redeem is a big one. It's, it's a big word to redeem or redemption. It's this beautiful imagery that Paul uses of the slave trade language where it's basically uh, releasing a slave from their owner by paying their full price. It's basically purchasing someone for their full price of value. And so this language of Jesus redeeming then is Jesus paying this full price to the law because he completely fulfills it. He was completely sinless. He wasn't controlled or enslaved to anything of this world. He lived a perfect life. He met all the demands of this world. And Jesus lived a perfect life and therefore frees us from it. And he frees us from it by paying a price. And what was the price that needed to be paid? Death. See, Galatians 3, Paul writes this earlier on. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, our only hope in overcoming the things that enslave us of this world is to know and be united and to experience the freeing reality that Christ gives. 
And, and one of the ways that Christ frees us is by changing our very identity where we are no longer enslaved to all these things of this world that control us, but now our identity in Christ is now changed because of his death which welcomes us to the Father and adopts us as children, that we are no longer now called slaves. We are called what? Sons. Which means that we no longer function as people who are controlled and manipulated and abused by all the things that control us in this life, but now we are adopted as sons with a new identity and a new freedom and a new purpose and a new value. This is what is going on when Jesus comes to offer us freedom. Now, to understand this, we really need to have this perspective of, of placing ourselves almost in the slave market. Where it's hard for us to imagine, but for many years it would have been quite normal, even a setting like this, to have a handful of people up here and, and people literally bidding to purchase them, to take them home as masters and then they being their slaves. And yet, this is what Jesus does. He does not just purchase, he does not just redeem us and offer us freedom. There's something deeper going on here. There's an image that's beyond just the purchase of our freedom. Jesus, yes, purchases us from the penalty of death he purchases us from the penalty of sin. He purchases us from the penalty even of slavery. But there's something else that is happening here. Not only did Christ remove the curse that we deserved, he also gives us the blessing that only he deserves. And, and so there's this beautiful picture. I mean, it's one thing to purchase a slave and offer them freedom and say, go off and do whatever you want to do. It's another thing to purchase a slave and invite them into your very family, isn't it? Because now everything that you have as a family is now entrusted and inherited by them. See, Jesus comes and not just offers us freedom, he offers us adoption into the family of God. We're no longer slaves but children of God, which means that now our whole relationship with God has changed in a drastic way, in a beautiful way. Because now we have this picture of not just God as a master who frees us, but God as a father who actually welcomes us in. Now, now what's the difference of that? Well, a master, when they purchase a slave, what do they do with them? They use them. They're there to fulfill whatever they want, but a father does what to a child? He blesses them. See, you serve a master, but a father serves you. Isn't that beautiful? A, a master motivates you by fear and by threatening you, but a father motivates you by love. A master overworks you and beats you. Anyone feel like that with their boss sometimes? <laughs> but a father equips you and builds you up. A master will make you do all the work and yet you receive none of the inheritance. And yet a father brings you in and offers you full inheritance. 
This is why John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, this is the beautiful reality of the gospel. It's not just about freedom, but it's about inheritance and being a member of the family of God. And so this is why Paul in verse 7 of chapter 4 can say so boldly, he says, you are no longer a what? You are no longer a slave. When you are in Christ, you're no longer controlled by all these things. You're no longer enslaved to temptation. You're no longer enslaved to worry. You're no longer enslaved to fear. You're no longer enslaved to, to perfectionism or workaholism or the essence to prove yourself or prove your meaning or prove your value. He says you are no longer a slave to any of these things. But you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through Christ. See, here's what's beautiful. To be a Christian then is this, this standing, it's this gift of God, it's l literally this legal position that ta Paul is talking about, to be a child of God. And, and here's what's beautiful, it's this identity, you're, you're either a son or you are not. There's nothing you can do, do to prove or to um, enhance your ability to get adopted. It's a status that you have, it's your identity. And so the, the thing with this new identity then is we all have a choice of that. We either live for something or we live from something. And if we function as a slave, we're always living for things. We're, we're living for approval. We're, we're living for identity. We're, we're living to produce and perform and, and all these things that we have to strive for. And yet Paul says, you know what? You don't have to live for any of that. You don't live for things anymore. You live from things. You live from your identity as a son. That means you don't have to work for approval in this life anymore because you are accepted and loved in Christ. You don't have to work for success or for identity because you already have the gift of identity as sons in Christ. You don't always have to be striving to produce and perform because your love is already secure in the devotion of the Father. It's a very, very different kind of relationship, isn't it? See, what, what's fascinating to me, every other religion, I've studied so many religions. Most of my friends growing up were Sikhs, so I even studied a lot of Sikhism. And, and every other religion that I've studied, it's this, this perspective of your, your worship before God, your, your pursuit of God is even always based on working harder, always based on striving. It's always this concept of slaves where you are trying to prove yourself or you got to reincarnate or you got to do a good job or you got to pay God back for something or you got to earn merits or favor with God and it's all slave-based. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that it is completely based alone on identity of sonship because of what Christ has done, not what any of us have done. And so it's this beautiful God-given gift of relationship that he has offered to us. And so my hope for us is that what we need to do then as the people of God is to look at these things in our life that enslave us 
that, that drive us or control us or things that we pursue in life that are apart from God. And we need to replace it with a new identity by saying, this is who I am in Christ and this is how I will now function in Christ. This is the identity that I hold and now I'm going to function out of that identity. And, and so what I want us to do for the remainder of the time is I, I just want us to go into a time of contemplation. I'm going to get us to bow our heads for a little bit, and I, I had a little note here. I found it here. Uh, something we do in what's called freedom session here. I know many of you have been part of that. But part of what we need to do in our lives is replace all these lies that we believe about ourselves, all these things that enslave us even farther, and replace them with the truth. And I'm going to read just some scripture over you guys, and then I'm going to get Cynthia and the team to come and just spend time in contemplation. But, but let me read some of these things to you. Just bow your heads and hear this scripture over yourself. And it's, it's this explanation of our identity in Christ. So who am I according to God? I am loved, wanted, and accepted. John 1.12 says, I am a child of God by his choice. Psalm 139 says that God personally knit me together in my mother's womb. He wanted me. 1 John 3 says that I am a child of God and he delights in me. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for me by sending his son to die in my place. Romans 8 says that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. We are also forgiven. 2 Corinthians says that we are new creations in Christ. Our past doesn't held against us. Romans 8 says that I am free forever from all condemnation. Ephesians 1 says that I am a saint, holy, and blameless in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5 says that I am declared righteous by God. Romans 5 says that I have peace with God. Romans 8 says that I am a co-heir with Christ. I receive all the inheritance Ephesians 2 says that I am his workmanship created to do good works. 1 Corinthians 3 says that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. Let's pray to that extent. I'm going to invite Cynthia up. And the biggest thing I want you to contemplate right now is just sit in the presence of God and ask him the question, do I view you as master or do I view you as father? Am I enslaved to the things of this world or do I have freedom in Christ? And so during this time, we're just going to leave time open in space. Cynthia is going to play some music in the back for us and I just want you to contemplate these things. Pray to God. Interact with God. Allow him to speak to you to reveal some of the 
the things that enslave you in this life and not just offer you freedom, but offer you an entirely new identity. And so I invite you to continue to do that here and now.